0: This podcast contains strong language and adult themes, including discussion of suicide and suicidal thoughts.
1: When you're sitting there in a cockpit of a small aircraft, you're you're strapped in and it's pretty tight and it can be pretty hot because there isn't typically air conditioning. All you've got is the clouds and the water and the sky around you. You don't see any news or you don't hear anything coming through you've got the aviation chatter on the radio you've got the sound of the engine which is just a constant consistent whirl you get fresh air blasting through the air pipes at you and you just smell the freshness of air with a hint of um, engine smells because you're behind the propeller but it's just this little space that's away from everything, and you don't really have to worry about anything else except keeping safe and getting to where you're going.
0: Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health produced for stuff by me, Adam Dutting. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today... Fight or Flight, with Jamie Lee Ross, Member of Parliament for Botany in Auckland. These days, Jamie Lee is an independent MP because late last year he was expelled from the opposition National Party.
1: I was uh, born in Middlemore Hospital. It was an interesting circumstance where my mother was pretty young when she had me. My father donated some DNA up the back of the army barracks, I am told. But that's about it. He's had no part in my life. Um, And I was raised by my grandmother from a very young age. My mother lives on the North Shore with her husband. We're not close, but she supports me and she cares about me and that's what I appreciate. I've never made any effort to look for my father. I figure, you know, he knows my name. If he was in New Zealand and really wanted to, he could reach out and I'm not hard to find. I often think one day I might, but it's not high on my priority list. I grew up in a small flat South Auckland with my grandmother, who left her job at the freezing works to look after me, she also was looking after her mother, my great-grandmother at the time. So I was essentially raised by two ladies, two women. They got me into a great school, Dilworth School. Every boy that's there comes from either a single-parent home or a very low-income home. Uh, We ticked both those boxes, so I got into that school and was very lucky to be there too. And that, I guess, gave me male figures in my life as well. It's hard when you go to a boarding school, a little nine-year-old boy going in standard three. I think that's year five in new money. And there's a lot of fending for yourself. Yeah, that shapes you a little bit. But yeah, around form three, form four, I did feel quite bullied. So I managed to convince my grandmother to let me go to what I considered was a normal school. Peckering College is a good school too. That was probably The point at which I, if I look back, I can say, yeah, there's some signs there that I wasn't going so well emotionally and mentally. And when things were too tough or I wasn't enjoying myself, I would just run away, catch a bus from Pakaranga where we lived into town and hang out there for the day. I remember one day being completely saturated in the pouring rain down at the viaduct just sitting there on a bench all by myself just being in my own little world that was my thing running away and I would never stay away overnight I'd I'd usually get back um, relatively late but that was sufficiently alarming for my grandmother that she needed to get help for me. I've noticed over time that my way of handling things, when it comes to fight or flight, I initially flight and run away from it, but then I come back and fight really hard. I was never physical but I have quite a sharp tongue, and so think about teenage me, I probably was very moody, probably wasn't particularly nice to be around, and so I ended up going to the Counties Manukau youth section um, and started some group therapy. That wasn't working so well for me, but the guy that was running the group therapy took me on as a private client. This great guy called Ron Phillips, and he helped me a lot. He's also the person that I went back to when things got tough last year. And did you stop running away? I stopped running away for a long period of time, until recently. When I went to Pakaranga halfway through the fourth form, they let me do a couple of subjects ahead. Come to sixth form, I went to the principal and said, let me skip sixth form completely. He said, no, I'm not doing it. And I said, well, I don't want to spend two more years here. And so being headstrong and someone who sometimes makes quick decisions, I decided to leave the school. My loves and passions growing up were aviation and politics. And so, as soon as I had the freedom of not being at school, I went out to Ardenham Airport, jumped in an aeroplane, did an introductory flight, and just loved it so much. And so I would work and then spend pretty much all my money on flying lessons. I remember that first feeling, taking off, seeing the ground getting smaller, and the feeling of being away from everything. And I also spent time in the afternoons going to the Manukau City Council meetings, watching them. It's pretty weird for a 16, 17 year old, but I was interested in politics. I didn't have the means to go to Wellington. So the next best thing was to go to the local council meetings. After a while, I thought, I reckon I could do that. So I decided to stand for election in 2004. My slogan was give youth the voice in our city. Every politician can give you their grand, you know, I wanted to get into politics to change the world story. I could give you one of those. But the cold kind hard of reality was I saw these people who were making decisions about the community that they lived in, and I thought, hey, I'd like to be involved too. And it escalated from there. By election. House of Representatives. This legislation the National Party
0: went bench MP. Jamie Lee Ross.
1: I once recall seeing someone describe Parliament as being like school camp, but with alcohol involved, and that's very much um, what it's like. You do things that you wouldn't do in the normal workplace. I mean, who goes into a room with 120 other people and just sits there screaming across the hall at each other? We put ourselves in glossy brochures with our families looking the, the perfect picture of what we want the public to believe we are. We present messaging that actually ends up covering up how we're actually feeling. I was hiding it and I was covering it up and it wasn't until it all exploded that I really realised what was going on in my head. The normal rules of life don't exist in that place. And that's fine and great when it's going well for you, but when you start to fall down, it's kind of, oh, that person's fallen down, okay, let's just move around that so we can all keep going in our own direction for ourselves because that's one less person you have to compete with. When you're in the public realm experiencing a life meltdown with the whole country watching, (laughs) it makes it a lot harder. 2018 was a particularly difficult year for me. I am married with two kids, but I conducted a somewhat long-term affair with one of my colleagues, who was also married as well. We were flatmates. It was a very turbulent circumstance, and it was not good for either of us from a mental well-being perspective. The point at which things started to really get off the rails for me, though, was probably about March. I'd supported my friend, Simon Bridges, to become the party leader. I felt as though the closeness of our relationship meant that he'd be prepared to fulfil certain promises that he'd made. He didn't fulfil a range of promises, and we started falling out. These stresses were accumulating. People that knew me well were observing that I wasn't looking happy. I was looking lethargic and tired. I was drinking too many energy drinks and not eating properly. I cut off the inappropriate affair with the other MP. And that set in train a whole range of events. By the time we get to August, she sent me a text message in the middle of the night, and it was pretty nasty, and it made me feel very worthless. When I received that text message, which ended with the words, you deserve to die, that's the point at which I decided to seek help and went back to the counsellor that helped me uh, years and years ago when I was a teenager. I remember that morning pretty well. I, it was a sad day morning. We usually go to swimming lessons with our children, who are three and six. And I started typing the email out to Ron. And I started to become emotional as I was sitting there in the swimming pool. It's not unusual for me to use my phone in the swimming pool, but here I was in front of you know all these other families that were there, and my own children, and my wife stood next to me, and I was at the point of bawling my eyes out. So I ended up having to leave the poor complex. I went and sat in my car and just kind of broke down crying. After reaching out to Ron Phillips, I saw him a couple of times. He felt I needed to see an actual doctor, and he referred me to a friend of his who's a psychiatrist. Even though I still wasn't quite prepared to admit that I wasn't well, the psychiatrist he just connected so many dots in my life that I didn't realise were connected. and So he was able to identify that you know, part of the feelings that I felt towards the party leader you know, could have some link to do with not having a father in my life. And so that's been really revealing for me to understand how my brain works and how I function. My friendship with the new party leader was going poorly. And by the time we got to September, he accused me of a range of things and I accused him of a range of things. I was fairly emotionally distressed and I ended up going on medical leave, which was publicly announced. Taking sick leave from
0: Parliament
1: so after being on medical leave for a couple of weeks, I asked for a meeting with the leadership so I could talk about transitioning back to Parliament. At the meeting, I was presented with this report saying I'd leaked information, which I denied. I was put in this position where, having been shown a first copy of a report, which basically would have ended my career in the National Party, I had literally an hour to decide what to do because in an hour's time, it was all going to be put out in public and I knew the nation's media would be chasing me. So I had a quick decision to make. Did I stay in Auckland and front up to everyone right then and there when I was unprepared, or did I just run? I went home, I packed the bag, I went to an ATM, I drew out as much money as the ATM would allow me, I sent a goodbye text message to a couple of people that were important to me, I sent some tweets, in anticipation of the media war that was about to start. And I turned my phone off. And I just drove. When it comes to fight or flight, I fly away first and then I come back to fight. The reason I drove to Wellington is because I knew that the media would be looking for me at the airports. My sole mission was to get to Wellington undetected so that I could have my day in front of the TV cameras on my terms. I got to Wellington about 11 o'clock or midnight. I put myself to bed and then I got up the next morning at 8am and I typed out what turned out to be about a 15 minute long statement on my computer. I couldn't print the statement out because I could only do that in Parliament. So I ended up driving to warehouse stationery, getting my statement printed out and then I drove back to Parliament. I sat outside on the curb about 10 to 11, sent out a tweet saying I would speak to the media at 11 o'clock on the Black and White Tiles, which is the place in Parliament where we do media stand-ups, and then went in there and just decided to rip the scab off everything that had been sitting there for weeks and months, festering away. He's coming. Ladies and gentlemen, the media. I'm going to read a statement. I apologise in advance for the length. Please allow me to outline all the information I need to course. I know that it probably sounds, in hindsight, like I was doing the wrong thing. Some people probably think it was a, a bit of a crazy person talking, but I knew the only real option I had. To be able to have a chance of surviving in the long term was to fight back. The National Party, of course, needed to fight back, and so it escalated. The next day, I went to the police station and laid a police complaint against the party leader. Come the Thursday, and that's when we get that devastating news story, which completely floored me.
0: Four women have made some damning allegations about... This is detailing accounts of four women who are talking about being manipulated... he has been labelled a narcissist who left them fearful.
1: Where a number of women accused me of, one, uh, being a bad boss, and there were two relationships in there which were inappropriate, where I had an affair with two women. The colleague that I had an inappropriate relationship with, one of the things that she anonymously put out there was the term narcissist and unfortunately it's taken hold a little bit i think i find the term particularly nasty because it's effectively saying i have no care for the people around me and that's simply untrue yeah i've made some dumb decisions well that doesn't mean i'm so self-consumed that i have no regard for anyone else with the psychiatrist at one point I said do you consider that I have narcissistic personality disorder and he said well you know I kind of think nobody has it and everybody has it I said what do you mean? he said well everybody has self pride and everybody has self belief to a certain extent but nobody really has it because the way in which it's understood by the lay person is to mean something so bad that you know very few people if any actually have it so he said I don't particularly like the term and I never really use it and the answer in my view is no I knew that there was no real ability for me to fight back in the media at that point, so I went to ground again. On the day of that news article, I just switched my phone off again, got back in the car, drove back in the other direction, back to Auckland. Again, I was evading the media. The difference with that drive was quite stark. The previous one, I was scared I was concerned about what the future held but I felt like I knew what to do on the drive back I was scared again but at this point I didn't know what the future held I didn't know what I was going to be doing I had no idea what survival looked like I was now at the point where I was losing you know my family and my personal relationships as well so I'm driving back on the Thursday back to Auckland not knowing what the future holds I was not in good shape I distinctly recall having pulled over the side of the road I was answering some text messages and I remember the stuffed political editor she said are you going to be resigning tomorrow and I said to her a vacancy will be created tomorrow. A vacancy in the parliament can be created by someone resigning. It can also be created by the death of the MP. And I remember looking in the rear view mirror and I could see there were trucks coming towards me. It was a relatively narrow route and I remember thinking to myself you could get out right now and just finish it all off. I scared myself a lot on that journey. I was talking to my psychiatrist. I was sitting in the car park outside of Burger King somewhere and I said to him, mate, you've got to lock me up. I'm not in good shape here. He wouldn't, he actually. He refused to lock me up. He felt, from a psychiatrist's point of view, I was at my best when I was fighting back. And so I carried on driving. I eventually got to, might have been about 3am in the morning where I could tell I was no longer in a fit state to drive and I pulled over on the side of the road and found somewhere to sleep. Then I eventually woke up again in the morning and drove back to Auckland, got home and just collapsed in bed. That same day though, on the Friday, I knew that I had to get up one last time and give one more media interview. If I had left it all at, I had disappeared completely and I had allowed that quite nasty story about me to be the complete end of me, then I wouldn't have felt as though I'd done enough. I was sleep deprived, I was emotionally distraught. I was in no fit state to be speaking (laughs) on live radio. But I got out of bed, put that suit on, Drove into town.
0: Are you okay right now? Yes. I'm sat there
1: in the also, studio, having eaten, I think, half a banana in sort of a 24 hour period. And I gave another media interview. I felt as though I had to do that to show people that I uh, was not all over. I was still there and I was still fighting on. But that was the last straw, and that completely wrecked me. I'd lost my friends, I felt like I'd lost my job, I felt like i lost my family, and I was sleeping in a hotel, and I felt completely worthless, and I felt complete shame, and I again asked my psychiatrist if he could lock me up, because I felt I was a danger to myself, and he still didn't feel it was quite at the point. So we get to Saturday morning I didn't wake up till about 3pm I had woken up thinking This is the day that I'm going to die This is the last day for me And I remember asking my wife I was texting her And I, I, was, I would have sounded quite distressed And I wouldn't have sounded well But I remember asking her Can I see the children one last time? And being a good mother and putting the protection of our children first and foremost, she won't let me see the children. She thinks it's important for the children not to see their father in a hotel room, in an emotional state. It was the best judgment from a mother's perspective, but that was the point at which I thought, well, there's nothing left to live for. You can't even see your children now. What a worthless piece of crap you are, having done all of this, and blowing everything up, so I got up and why I decided to have a shower and shave when I intended on not being here much longer, I don't know, but I did anyway, (laughs) um, pride in appearance is important, (laughs) and I got in the car, and I then just started driving. memories I have of one of the police ride-alongs that MPs often do is going to the scene of a suicide and the sound of the mother wailing over the body of her 16 year old girl. That is a sound I will never forget and there's been a few moments where I've kind of thought to myself if I was to do what I'm thinking about here I'm going to make somebody wail like that and that's not particularly nice I was sitting in a car park at McDonald's my last supper was McDonald's <laughs> um, great choice and the text message that I'd received that really nasty message, I sent it back to her with the words you get your wish she knew exactly what I meant by that and she knew that that meant danger. So she called emergency services. She tried to call me. I ended up answering and... I can't even remember what I said. It wouldn't have been flash. But she kept calling and calling. An ambulance and a police car were sent to my house because no one knew where I was. A media outlet got wind of that because I remember at this point in time I'm still highly newsworthy. So... I ended up having the person that sent me that nasty text message and my wife and my psychiatrist and the political editor of one of the nation's media outlets all trying to contact me very concerned and thinking that I'm going to do something pretty dumb and I was prepared to do something pretty dumb what I hadn't factored in and it was helpful in hindsight was that I hadn't realised that a spare phone I was carrying with me had Find My iPhone still going. My wife worked with the police to try and locate me. They couldn't locate exactly where I was, but they had a nice big radius to work within. Am I really gonna do this, or am I not? Fortunately, there were people texting me It's a bit of advice if anyone's, you know, feeling that they want to hurt themselves, keep in contact with them, because it took my mind off deciding to actually take that final step. And for some reason, I
0: pulled out my phone. Adam here. In this podcast, I've tried to let everyone tell their own stories without me getting in the way. But during this part of the interview, Jamie Lee Ross discussed some of the details of his intended self-harm. The problem with that is there's some pretty convincing research which shows that for a very small number of people who might already be thinking seriously about self-harm, it can be genuinely risky to read or hear about possible methods in news reports or in a podcast or even in a fictional book or movie. And that's true, even if these are methods that you might have thought were pretty obvious or familiar. So we've edited out the bits where Jamie gets too explicit about method. What he's talking about, at this point, though, is the fact that he used his phone to capture an image of his intended method. I ended up sending that to my wife.
1: And she realized I was deadly serious at that point. And she was in contact with the police. They, I guess, escalated it from someone sounding distressed to someone's at a point where they could hurt themselves. And that's when they sent, um, helicopters, there were police dogs, and there were ground units, and it was at that point where I was like, oh, what a messed up week this has been, I can't even successfully end it all, what a complete failure of life you are. And so I was crying my eyes out, I was walking back to my car, I realized that it was not going to happen, and, by this point there were a lot of police units around i could see the lights of the police car 20 meters back from where my car was and i knew that i was not going to be able to just drive away but for some reason i still kind of just went back to the car unlocked it went to get in and of course that's when i had stop police and i was kind of putting my hands up, like you see in the movies, having never been stopped by police before in my life. And they came and said they were detaining me under the Mental Health Act, and they patted me down and took me back to the car. And I remember the sergeant that was with me, his name was John, he was probably about 50, he was British, and I remember him walking with me and, and he put his arm around me and he just said, it's alright, we're going to get you some help and I hadn't felt that whole week that anyone had reached out and done the simple act of kindness of putting their arm around me and saying, it's going to be okay. And that meant a huge amount. We got in the car and drove to Waikato Hospital. The staff at Waikato Hospital were really good. Remembering again, I was fairly high profile in that week. I led the 6 o'clock news on the Tuesday for 17 minutes. I was pretty high profile and they were kind enough to take me in a back door. I have these funny memories of me sitting there in a room for a couple of hours with uh, two psychiatrists and the nurse where I was actually negotiating with them what they would do to me because there's certain parts of the Electoral Act, if Member of Parliament is detained under the Mental Health Act, for a period of time it can end up them losing their seat. I'm negotiating with the doctors over what they're going to do to me and we're reading legislation. It was one of the very strange parts of that week. We decided that I would go in voluntarily and then they would decide the next day what to do to me And I get put into this room where the door locks. I'm not allowed anything with me other than the clothes I was wearing. I had to give away the belt and things like that. It had a steel toilet and basin and a bed. And that was it. When I woke up the next morning at about 7am, I remember thinking... What have I done? What is going on? I'm this proud person. I'm a member of the House of Representatives. I've been in politics for 15 years. I have a nice house and two kids and a wife. And I had lots of friends. And now here I am in this box, deprived of my liberty. My cell phone is... I joke with my wife, it's surgically attached to my hand most of the time. And I don't have that and I just break down again. That's the point at which they initiated the formal compulsory sections under the Mental Health and Compulsory Treatment Act. They transported me to Middlemore Hospital and I was assessed again, and fortunately not put in a box with a door I couldn't unlock this time, but still, I was in a mental health facility against my will, by definition. And so they they wouldn't allow me to make any phone calls out. They wouldn't allow me to read any newspapers. I had to trick one of the psychiatric assistants into turning the TV over to TV3 News so I could watch it at six o'clock because I was desperate to know what was being said about me. When I was there, it wasn't as if I had all these needles shoved in me and had medication forced down me. It was was very, very civilised. I was offered medication help me sleep and if i felt anxiety but i didn't want any medication i felt very relaxed being in there i slept more than i had slept that whole week my appetite which was almost non-existent came back it was a great circuit breaker and a great opportunity just to be away from everything that was causing me more and more distress and getting me further and further into a hole that also made me re-evaluate and reassess the direction i was heading in because i was heading towards death my first goal was i wanted to get my phone back my second goal was to convince them that i didn't need to have someone watching me 24 7. i couldn't shower or use the bathroom with the door shut i had my bag searched so razors and belts and cords and everything they were gone And then my third goal was to convince them that I was safe enough to be released. It is quite unfortunate when you read online and people say, oh, he was only in there for a couple of days, it can't have been anything wrong with him. For seven different psychiatrists to assess me and say, this person needs to be compulsorily held against their will to have time out, That says things were at breaking point for me. Our mental health resources are stretched, they don't just lock someone up for no good reason. I feel sorry for the people who have such little understanding of our mental health facility to think that you can just play games and go in there for no real reason. I also feel sorry for the people who think that we're the type of country where a political party can utilise the mental health system to lock somebody up. I've seen those comments online and they're they're extraordinary. I mean, I don't like the National Party much anymore, but even they're not that bad. <laughs> they can't lock somebody up for political reasons. One of the things that I find distressing is when people try and say that I'm using mental health as a reason to ignore what happened last year. I have never at any point said, give me a free pass because I was suffering emotional distress at the same time. I think it adds some context to last year, but I'm still accountable for my words and my actions, and I'm accountable for the outcome uh, where I was involved as well. I often get asked, what were you diagnosed with? What do you have? But there is no real box you can put me in i asked my psychiatrist so doc what can you diagnose what what's going on uh, he fudged it for a bit and then he eventually said there is nothing what i think you're suffering from is is adjustment disorder so i said what's adjustment disorder and He said, about well, it's, it's actually a bit of a cheat term we don't entirely know what's going on but it's more situational it's more how you're adjusting to things going on i was suffering from extreme stress, a whole lot of circumstances that were challenging, that I couldn't handle anymore, and I broke. And it doesn't matter whether I broke down because of the circumstances and the situation, or there's some box and label you can apply to me. The fact is, I felt so shit about life, I felt so distressed and so low and worthless, that I didn't want to live anymore. One of the consequences of all that difficulty last year is i'm getting emotional faster i'm becoming teary at things that i might not normally have when i spoke in the parliament recently some close friends said to me i didn't look myself and i didn't speak as confidently as i used to what i'm finding is there's still a road to recovery it's not a binary thing that you're unwell or you're well There's a lot of shades of grey in there and it's going to take longer than I thought.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. If you want to subscribe to the full series or learn more about the people I've interviewed, check out stuff.co.nz outofmymind. If this episode has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, the website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with a counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds, Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chilkoff at Department of Post. My editorial advisor was Eugene Binger. Special thanks also to Tammy Allen and Katrina Ferguson. Full credits on the website. And if you liked this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. See ya.